This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Um, both in our class and in the wider web world, this is um, the morning after, uh, although we are still in the day before. So my name is Michael Mark Cohen. I'm an associate teaching professor of African-American studies and American studies here at the University of California at Berkeley. And I'm the professor, the co-professor with my, um, my co-professor, Saro Jayaraman. Can I ask you to just uh, introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. My name is Saro Jayaraman. Uh, I am an uh, associate adjunct professor. I think that's my official title at the Goldman School of Public Policy, also affiliated uh, with the African-American studies department. And... Uh, Outside of Berkeley, I lead a national social movement organization fighting to raise wages and working conditions in the service sector nationally. Wonderful. So on behalf of the both of us, I want to welcome everybody both in our class and uh, around the wider web in the webinar and on YouTube. And this is an experiment in live public education, uh, something that would strike fear in the hearts of most university professors, including this one, but we're doing it anyways. And in part because uh, the this is part of an enormous class, a big effort created by the University of California in particular at Berkeley to engage in public education for the purpose of an educated public. Public, and to try and teach a class for the first time in the history of the University of California at Berkeley on a U.S. presidential election during a U.S. presidential election in which we attempt to both present the deep roots of the political crisis that confronts us as well as keep as up to the moment as possible. And this is the most up to the moment uh, I think that we uh, have found ourselves at this point. So um, let me just give a kind of a couple of brief uh uh, thank yous uh, by way of an introduction. I want to talk about how this experiment in uh, is going to go, uh, and then I, I, you know, if it's not too much, I want to ask uh, Saro to sort of give some of the first, you know, reactions and responses. Um, but. Uh, First of all, I want to say um, a big thank, you know, a set of thank yous to the people who really made this possible. Uh, I want to thank the people uh, in the College of Letters and Science here at the University of California at Berkeley, particularly in the Big Ideas uh, program that allowed this class to go forward, uh, to those in the Semester in the Cloud project that helped us um, provide the infrastructure, the digital infrastructure for trying at least to the best of our ability to do um, a big Zoom class uh, right, to do it as well as I think it can be done. I want to thank the people, uh, the staff in the Departments of African American Studies, the Goldman School of Public Policy, uh, the American Culture Center, and in Educational Technology Services for making all of this possible. And I want to thank the folks at UCTV in particular for supporting this class, making this webinar and its live stream possible. Uh, and for making all of the lectures um, in this class available to the wider public. So if, this, if you're showing up for the first time today, then welcome. It's nice to uh, have you all out there. If um, you have been following along uh, on YouTube and in the public policy channel at UCTV, then I, I bid you welcome as well. Um, and if you're just learning about us, then you can watch all of the previous lectures uh, on the UCTV public policy channel. So um, this is a great opportunity for us uh, in the university at the University of California, Berkeley, to find a wider audience in which to engage in deeper conversations about what uh, is shaping our political crises at the moment, how we've come to this particular conjuncture, and what's at stake moving forward. Now, 
the one thing I will say before I turn to sorrow immediately is that um, by every indication, the entire nation is swelling with uncontrollable emotions. We are swinging in every conceivable direction. There are a lot of feels out there, especially if you end up on social media. And I think that with what the entire country right now really does have uh, the Twitter feels, right? Uh, which is to say, and I, I think I, I realized what Twitter is a few years ago, and it helped me understand it and address it, which is to say that people tweet as if it were the last thing they were ever going to say. They wrap themselves in the emotion of that instant, but they put it onto Twitter as if it were a definitive statement of their lifelong philosophical, historical, ethical, even religious uh, affiliations and understandings, when really all that's happening on Twitter is a very performative, moment-by-moment public emoting. So we need to both respect the political emotions that people are feeling right now, and I I really began this class with a a clear sense that a lot of what politics is and the way we experience politics is not about Um, reason, rationality, or any of those. It's about feelings. It's not about facts. It's about feelings. And political feelings matter. That's what drive people to vote. That's what drive people to seek social justice. That's what drive people uh, to participate in this this system. That's what's driving people right now, frankly, a little bit batty. That and sleep deprivation. So we need to respect and think about the way in which we're both feeling in this moment, right, because this moment is stretching out. This election is not over. We do not have a winner. We do not know who's going to win. Although I will say, and I'll go over this in a moment, that you know, for those of you who are anxious, liberals, progressive, leftists, what have you, there is much mourning to be had. There is much disappointment and sorrow to be had, uh, but there's also still opportunity out there. Um, so th- this is not over. This is a very much an ongoing situation. So Patience and perseverance are our allies right now. Cynicism and pessimism, while reasonable, are um, something that we should at least, for the foreseeable future, attempt to hold at bay. So just in terms of um, where we are politically in this moment, let me turn it to Sorrow and, and have her uh, offer us some immediate thoughts. <laughs> um, well, uh... First of all, I want to say thank you also, like Professor Cohen, to everybody who helped to pull this together and to broadcast it widely. Um, I, 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 this morning found myself, I've been up all night, maybe like many of you. Um, I, uh, this morning found myself in a huge national fight, which I will explain in a few minutes over whether people should mobilize today or not. Um, and It kind of is a reflection, I think, also of the broader kind of just total confusion, chaos, feelings that Professor Cohen mentioned that everybody's feeling across the country. It is is a reflection of the very confusing and isolated moment that we're in. Everybody's isolated and confused, and the combination is just explosive and intense. Um, So I do want to say what we do know is that pretty much what we expected to happen is happening. Number one, uh, we didn't get an answer last night. Number two, we knew that on the day of, given the tendency for Trump supporters to vote on the day of and for uh, Democrats and Biden supporters to vote ahead of time with mail-in ballots or with absentee ballots, 
we knew that we would not have a clear result and that many more votes needed to be counted. We also knew because Trump told us, and if you study fascists and dictators and autocrats, you know, you listen, you, you listen to what autocrats and dictators say, and they always tell you what they're going to do in advance. So on Saturday, they communicated their campaign, as, I'm, as we talked about on Monday, they communicated that they would declare victory if there was any kind of indication that they were winning on the day of an attempt to stop the vote counting. And true to his word, at 2 a.m. Eastern, he came out and said, I have already won, and any further vote counting is fraudulent, and we're going to attempt to stop it through the Supreme Court. And, and I, uh, I think it's so important. I, I, I led a class a few weeks ago with you all talking about communications and communications uh, expertise that comes from the political pundits. And one thing we talked about is this idea that in politics, if you are truly savvy, you put out the most extreme thing that you want and you pretend like you retreat and you retreat back to the thing that you actually want. And uh, basically what we're seeing here is a very savvy attempt to essentially declare victory, um, you know, and to do it in a way that they said they were going to do, <laughs> exactly as they said they were going to do. And so um, the, the real kind of uh, frustration that I'm feeling is that this morning there was a huge national debate that I participated in among all of the groups leading the Protect the Results Coalition, there were at least 150 different organizations on the call, Indivisibles, Move On, um, Color of Change, Presente was there. I mean, many of the groups that have come and spoke to this class, spoken to this class. And um, there was a strange attempt by some people to say, we need to call off actions today because it looks like the counting is working in Biden's favor, we, and the counts are being voted. Looks like people are minimizing Trump's uh, comments. They're not being taken seriously. And therefore, we should just hold and stand to see if there actually is any shenanigans and mobilize when there is shenanigans. And then um, there was a huge faction of local, that was national groups saying this. There was a huge contingent of local organizations leading the local actions in Oakland, in San Francisco, in New York, in Chicago, and all over the country who said, um, that is ridiculous. We know from the history of social movements and attempts to stop coups that you don't wait to have them follow through with what they say they're going to do. You try to stop it from happening before it happens and you try to uh, demonstrate the, the, pow the power of the people demanding that every vote, yes, they're being counted, but that they continue to be counted, that there is no attempt to stop them from being counted. And so uh, our faction won out in the sense that all the local actions for the most part are still happening, even if the national groups have, been, have called off their national coordination. And some suspect that was that national calling off of coordination was based on a call from the Biden campaign saying, we're winning, don't protest, because we want to put out a symbol, a, a message of strength that we're winning, not a message of reaction to Trump or weakness. And our response was, there is no greater 
you know, message of strength than people out in the streets demanding that votes be counted. So um, I do just want to say at the national level, what we, what we, where we're at right now, as you all know, is chaos. Those things do send, tend to be trending towards Biden. Um, they don't, aren't, they're not trending towards a confirmation of democratic processes or uh, listening to the will of the people. And that's what, where we must stay vigilant and organized. That's at the national level. I do want to mention a few other races that have gotten really overshadowed by the presidential election. Um, there were so many local and state fights that we should be also knowing what happened, thinking about what happened. Um, the U.S. Senate had some very, in my opinion, disappointing uh, results in the sense that uh, many of the Republicans who stood by Trump uh, maintained their seats, Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, um, Jody Ernst, many of the folks that were in tight, tight races, including Lindsey Graham and Jody Ernst, um, maintained their seats. There were two flips, John Hickenlooper in Colorado and uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona, really good flips, but, um, but it seems less and less and less likely, it's still possible, but less likely that uh, the control of the Senate will change. At the local level here in California, not everything has been called. I know one, um, there, there was a headline early this morning that um, whatever else is happening in the country, uh, the votes on propositions all around the country swung to the left. And that was true in Florida. People in Florida voted over, overwhelmingly for, to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour on a ballot proposition that was on the ballot at the same time that they voted in majority for Donald Trump. And we've seen this happen over and over again. People in red states voting to raise the minimum wage just as they vote for the Republican candidates who are dead set against raising the minimum wage. Um, we saw Colorado reject, the people of Colorado reject a long, t uh, a, um, late, a, a late pregnancy abortion ban, which was positive for, for pro-choice people. We saw um, New Jersey uh, legalize marijuana. We saw Oregon become the first state in the country to legalize other drugs, cocaine uh, and other small, other types of drugs. Um, so we've seen some really progressive propositions pass in other parts of the country, except for Louisiana, there was a bad um, re reproductive justice ballot measure that uh, went against pro-choice in, in Louisiana. However, in California, we are not seeing that same leftward swing on the propositions. Of course, not everything is finalized, but Proposition 22 was declared by the San Francisco Chronicle to have passed, meaning that independent contractors, Uber and Lyft drivers are being declared officially uh, just that, independent contractors, and um, treated as such, and really put under a pretty horrible regime that will ultimately result in them earning less than the minimum wage in the state of California per hour per the UC Berkeley Labor Center. So my hope is that there will be litigation against that ballot measure because it does actually get people to be paid less than the minimum wage. Um, we saw Proposition 15, Schools and Communities First, really struggle. Uh, we saw Proposition 16, the um, 
affirmative action and, and racial equity a ballot measure really struggle. Um, so we are not seeing, for the most part, leftward swings on California pro ballot propositions. Um, and so what does this mean? This means that there was thinking, uh, some of the things we, as I said, some of the things we thought would happen did happen. No real clear winner, later votes swinging more towards Biden, Trump declares he won anyway, tries to stop the counts, all of that predictable. But there was a hope and a sense that there would be a, some people called it blue tsunami. And there was a hope that progressive politics would actually win the day in this election. And that there would be a, a widespread repudiation of Trump, of his handling of the pandemic, and of hate and bigotry. And that didn't happen. That did not happen yesterday. There's still a clear, potential pathway for Biden. There is still a clear potential pathway um, for, for some Senate candidates. There's still a clear potential pathway uh, for democracy, uh, you know, for votes to be counted. But um, it will be a difficult future regardless of what happens because we saw more than ever an extremely divided country, maybe more so than we hoped a country that, that stuck with Trump, at least half of America sticking with Trump, despite the bigotry and um, the poor handling uh, with the pa of the pandemic. So um, I, <laughs> I'm, I am in this class and also uh, at the same time managing about 100 different people who are emailing me about local actions happening around the country. <laughs> so I'm going to try to multitask. But I, I, but I hope people will join us out in the streets today because I think in the context of that very divided country and the not lack of repudiation of, um, of hate and of bigotry, what does that mean for a Biden administration? It means that they are going to have a tough time governing. And if we know the history of the Democrats, that means they're going to try to please both sides. And there has to be, if, if, we, if we want any kind of progressive politics, which frankly are not progressive, liberal, they are just politics of taking care of people. If we want any kind of politics of taking care of people, people have to be out in the streets, not just to demand democracy and that every vote counts, but that the side of, that repudiates hate and stands for justice and stands for taking care of each other and stands for community as opposed to isolation and division, demands to be heard, not just in this electoral process, but in a Biden administration or any administration going forward. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, that's outstanding. Uh, we'll come back to you in a moment, to, particularly about the need for mobilization, what the sort of plans are or not, um, uh, and as you're apparently figuring out minute by minute. Um, so let me just offer um, a couple of, uh, you know, uh, uh, thoughts or attempts to sort of capture the moment as well on my own. And I'm going to, you know, do what I always do, which is like share screens and look at maps and things like that. And just to be uh, sort of, I, I, I think um, for, this is the New York Times map of the current results. Can you, you we see this? Yes. Okay. So what I want to, I, I, there are three things I want to try and look at briefly. One is just to say that uh, I think Sarah is exactly correct, that the broad-based feeling um, or desire of Democrats, progressives, the left, which, you know, normally don't necessarily all fit together, but who lump together in this cause, um, that uh, 
the desire to see Donald Trump comprehensively repudiated um, simply did not materialize. And it, you know, the version that I laid out for those in the class on Monday of what a Biden blowout would look like winning Florida, winning Georgia, winning North Carolina, winning Texas, so far that simply has not happened. And so what we're looking at is the, the, the strong possibility. So I, I, I think that if we look at the map, we look at where the election returns are coming in, and I, I do want to take a minute to go over some of this. I think the possibility of a Biden victory remains very strong. Uh, in fact, quite likely to one degree or another. And, and the reason why I can, I can, I'll tell you why I can say that. One, uh, let me see if these, this will work. Um, Biden is definitely up in Arizona and winning Arizona creates multiple paths for him um, to the presidency. Indeed, it creates a path for Biden to the presidency that does not necessarily include Pennsylvania, but it does produce an election result potentially of him winning 270 to 268, the narrowest possible electoral college victory. Now, so Arizona, what we have is, uh, you know, as this is going to say, there's 86% of the vote is in. Biden's up by about 100,000 votes. Arizona has said that they, they are collecting and tabulating their vote. They will not produce uh, the next batch of results until um, tomorrow. Uh, that, sorry, that, I think that's Nevada. Nevada is not going to produce it. Nevada is also at 86% um, uh, in. Uh, Biden is only up by 8,000 votes in Nevada, and we're not going to get more results from Nevada until tomorrow. But the majority of those votes coming in in Nevada are going to be absentee ballots in Las Vegas, where the overwhelming majority of the people in the state live, uh, and ballots that break very heavily um, for um, uh, um, Joe Biden. The key states of the upper Midwest, this is the blue wall that Biden um, desperately needed to build that are going to protect him and, and, you know, essentially carry the White House for him. So where we are, in a sense, is that um, Michigan, the votes are coming in. In Michigan, we're at 94% of the ballots reported. Um, they are not anticipating final results for Michigan until tomorrow or Friday. The majority of the outstanding vote in Michigan right now is in Wayne County, which is Detroit and the outer suburbs. So this is 76% last I checked of the ballots in um, Wayne County are in, the majority of them still out. We're, we're still looking for 100,000 possible votes to be counted in Michigan. And the larger counties still have ballots out. The smaller, uh, largely red rural counties have most of their ballots in. Um, and so this Michigan in particular looks um, strong for, for Biden. Similar situation in um, Wisconsin, um, where the, the lead is a, you know, a 30,000 vote lead. It's quite narrow, but the votes that are out are particularly in places like Milwaukee and Madison and elsewhere. So you know they got 97%, 98% of the vote in, in Wisconsin. So these are extraordinarily narrow wins, but, or at least leads. Um, and that is all quite significant. Um, other places to look is in Georgia, uh, in particular, which is surprisingly competitive. Now, we've got an 80,000 vote um, lead, it looks like, by Donald Trump in this place. Uh, but the last of uh, my tabulation is that there's more than 200,000 votes yet to be counted or 250,000 in upwards of. 
Um, in Georgia, uh, the president is up by about 80,000 votes right now, and the majority of the outstanding votes are in the Detroit, the Atlanta metro area. So we're talking DeKalb County, which is the sort of main Democratic heart of um, uh, Georgia and in Atlanta. Um, 80% of DeKalb County's vote is in, and Biden is leading that county by 83%. So if the 250,000 votes remaining in Georgia come in at anything like that percentage, it's possible for Biden to carry the state of Georgia, um, in which there is still an open Senate seat and a second seat that has then gone to a runoff in which a Democrat and Republican will face a runoff in January. So, you know, just so you you know that we're going to continue to sweat this all the way into the next year. Um, the most important remaining state in a cer- is, of course, Pennsylvania. Um, sorry, is Pennsylvania, in which um, Joe Biden, 80% of the vote is estimated to be in. Uh, Donald Trump is currently leading by about a half million votes. Now, again, the last time I checked, there's about 1.4, 1.2 million ballots outstanding in Pennsylvania. Biden is winning the absentee ballot share, um, 78% to 21%, which should net him roughly 700 to 800,000 votes in what remains. And so Pennsylvania also looks quite strong for Biden. But let's be clear here, Trump intends to contest the ballots in um, Pennsylvania. He is in the Supreme Court right now trying to get them to stop the vote count. Um, and that would create a situation on the one hand in which Biden, Trump could claim Pennsylvania. But if Biden wins Arizona, it doesn't matter. And the upper Midwest, it doesn't matter. So there's we're, we we are, as Saro said, we were, we're exactly where we thought we would be. Our hopes and dreams have been dashed. And so for liberals, progressives, the left, this is going to feel like a loss. Um, and it is. <laughs> Let's just be blunt about that. It is. It's a massive loss. At the same time, Biden can still become president. And now where are we? Where does that leave us? And so on the one hand, there's the, the kind of analytics, there's the numbers, there's all of that sort of stuff. Um, and then there's the larger question. I'm going to take my share down here. Um, I may bring it up in, a, in another moment. But so then this creates a, a, a couple of, of key questions for us. The first of all is to simply say, how is it that the Democratic Party simply could not field a meaningful opposition that could build a broad consensus against the Trump regime? in which a quarter of a million Americans have died of coronavirus, in which the economy has completely tanked, uh, in which the United States is an inferno of racial inequity um, and uh, and, uh, violence, and in which um, the country seemed to be quite openly looking for an alternative path that indeed uh, has not arrived, that the Democrats simply in picking the safe, old, white man, the safe path uh, has brought us perilously close to Trump's reelection. And indeed, running a candidate with little to no vision of what the future um, should be, offering nothing more in the way of simply being not Donald Trump, that Americans... Um, Simply, uh, you know, between the choice of Trump and not Trump, um, most Americans seem to sort of not see that as too much of a choice at all. Um, And I think this is a real deep crisis 
not just for the Democratic Party, but for much of the political establishment as we might think of it. Uh, the pollsters, we, we can talk about endlessly about how just deeply, profoundly wrong much of the polling is and has been. Now, we still need to wait to count all of the votes to sort of see what this turns out to be, but there needs to be a very serious reckoning, both with how we go about polling and how much stake we place in polling. And then the, the, what really needs to happen is a full-scale house clearing of anyone who professionally labels themselves a Democratic Party strategist. Uh, these people have got to go. They do not know what they're doing. Um, they, if, twice now, they have been un, unable to, rep, uh, to uh, roll back or defeat the most openly racist American president since Woodrow Wilson. Um, so that in itself represents a real crisis. And that brings me, I think, to my third and final point, and I'll turn it back to, um, to Sorrow, which is to say that what we're seeing here is the work of whiteness. We are watching American whiteness do its work right, in that most Americans apparently, you know, when the pollsters called, were not willing to say that they were going to vote for the open white nationalist. And they told, you know, I mean, look, Wisconsin is up, you know, Biden's up by 0.3% in Wisconsin. The polling averages at the end of the day had him up between 10 and 12 points. We, we need to scrap this model of understanding politics comprehensively. We either need to build a new one or we need to reimagine how we understand democratic politics. Um, and in particular, the question of the, the rates at which white people have chosen to vote on behalf of their racial privilege, on their racial identity, uh, their racial demands. Um, we, we are we're just simply watching whiteness work. The exit polls have demonstrated comprehensively uh, that white women voted for Donald Trump in numbers equal to or larger than they voted against Hillary Clinton in 2016, uh, and that white men are really the, the bulk of the, the Trump support. Um, and so I, I say this because there is already a story bubbling up. We see it in the ham-handed ways in which uh, CNN and MSNBC talk about this race in which, well, you know, black voters and Latino voters and, you know, so on and so on. As, so as to stigmatize and blame um, the people of color, particularly black and brown folks, um, for this loss, this close uh, this close race, so on and so on. And that is simply not the case. If we want to look at who's responsible for putting Donald Trump this close to his reelection, it's white people, it's white men. This is a conversation we need to have between white people um, about whiteness and what the future of this country looks like. And I, I would simply like to conclude by saying, you know, we are also watching not just whiteness work, but it's legal adjuncts, namely voter suppression. So in the state of Florida, Donald Trump won by 300,000 votes. Okay. But in 2018, the state of Florida passed a ballot measure by 64% that would have re-enfranchised 1.2 million um, uh, former felons, 1.4 million uh, convicted felons uh, to have their voting rights restored. This was passed overwhelmingly by the voters of Florida in 2018. This was challenged in court. The Republican state legislature in Florida passed a law saying that these folks can have their rights to vote back, but they have to pay all of their court costs, court fines, lawyers' fees, et cetera, which essentially instituted a poll tax upon uh, uh, Floridians to reinstate their voting rights. 
This then led to the comprehensive disenfranchisement of 775,000 Floridians, the overwhelming majority of which, as we understand because of the racial caste of the um, uh, criminal justice system, are black and brown folks. 775,000 people on the verge of the election were denied their right to vote that had been reinstituted and then re-revoked by the state of Florida. That is well more than enough people to have turned the state of Florida. So voter suppression continues to do the job that it was set out to do, right? And particularly in the state of Florida, we can talk, we can talk about um, North Carolina, Texas, uh, and elsewhere. And then just simply lastly, I will say this whole mess, all of this mess is the result of the electoral college. Without the electoral college, we would know who the president is. We would know, we would known going into yesterday because Biden is going to win by millions of votes. How many millions of votes he, you know, the popular vote he's going to win, you know, and it's going to take a while for California to count its votes. Uh, but this whole mess, all the chaos, all the possible legal, legal wrangling, all of this searching for votes, all of Donald Trump's attempt to subvert this election and stop the count, all of this could be prevented if we just simply rationally elected our president by a national popular vote. Yes, that is true. Um, <laughs> it's obvious, I know, but it's worth saying, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Yes, I wanted to, well, first I wanted to correct uh, what I said earlier. Thank you, Dominic and others for uh, lifting up that I said the word legalize when I should, should have said the word decriminalize uh, drugs in Oregon, um, which is different. Um, but following up on what Professor Cohen just shared, I thought maybe we could spend a few minutes talking about what comes next, like now. What do we do today? What do we do tomorrow? What do we do over the next couple of months. And, I, and as I said, it isn't just division between the right and the left about what comes next. Obviously, the right wants voting or leadership in the right, I should say. I'm not going to speak for all of the right, but leadership in the right wants vote counting to stop immediately, except maybe for the state of Arizona. <laughs> it's a very uh, schizophrenic response. Don't stop the counts in Arizona, but stop them everywhere else. Um, so we know what they want. Uh, the left or the Democrats want, and the Democrats, may I say the left and the Democrats want the votes to be counted to the very last vote, which honestly is not days, it, it's weeks. It's weeks to, to count all the absentee ballots. It's weeks. Um, so they, every, they want every vote to be counted. And um, and then what I was explaining earlier is that there's even disagreements among the left about how we, as the left, react, speak, act in that moment where votes are being counted, but there is a pushback against votes being counted. And so um, because I didn't get to share my screen because I was having PowerPoint problems the last time, I actually did want to just go back and remind us of what people in other countries have um, said is, let me just put this on, um, have said is necessary to stop coups and to stop, uh, to stop fascism, <laughs> to, to stop an undemocratic process. Um, civil resistance movements must generate bottom-up legitimacy. And, um, you know, make it clear to the public and to the people in charge that 
people having control of the White House is not the same as political control of the state. So you can have an illegitimate authority in the White House if the people control the state. And so uh, if, you know, it's really important as we talked about for people rising up against those kinds of fraudulent activities to have the partnership and, and willingness of local governments to partner with them, but they must engage in non-cooperation and um, and the the coups that have been defeated in the past are those that uh, were denied legitimacy by government actors at the local and state level. Where there's cooperation and everybody's unanimous that votes should be counted and that there should not be a coup, uh, you know, coup reversals win. And all successful cases of coup reversals included large public demonstrations and non-cooperation. And pro-democracy elements must mobilize quickly and engage in what may be unplanned and largely spontaneous acts of resistance. So the, so the, there's a problem in the United States, which is that there is a large contingent of Democrats and um, neoliberal liberals um, who I think are having a hard time believing that any kind of coup or kind of fascist activity could ultimately occur. There is a deep faith of, I would say, especially white liberals in the legitimacy of the system, the democracy of the system, the balances, the checks and balances, and the idea that Donald Trump saying at a 2 a.m. press conference from the White House, I have already won and I'm gonna ask the Supreme Court to stop the counting, that that doesn't need to be taken seriously because um, everybody on this morning's call, people were saying, nobody's taking that seriously, the networks aren't taking it seriously, nobody's taking it seriously, therefore, we shouldn't take it seriously. Um, and I think what, uh, on the, what is problematic is maybe because the United States hasn't experienced this kind of behavior in the past or just like this, um, or maybe these people in particular haven't in their lifetimes or they think they haven't, um, there is a sense that that just can't happen and we're not gonna take Donald Trump at, at face value when he says, I've already won and I'm going to push to stop the votes. Um, and, and, and again, I think there's a need to A, take people like Donald Trump seriously when they communicate what they're going to do, and then B, to look at what people have done in other countries and other places in terms of actually pushing back against coups. Um, so I'm not, I don't need to go through all of these, but I do want to go back to what, um, what the document, the count said could happen next, right? What could happen next, remember, is this period between November 3rd and December 8th, when every state has to submit its electoral college votes. And they are going to make it hard. They are going to try to stop the counting, but they're also going to claim that their votes were fraudulent and therefore there needs to be dual sets of electors submitted. And so uh, we need to fight to make sure every vote is counted, you know, if we want a full and fair election. Um, and Democratic governors and Democrats in office must push back against Republican attempts to submit, you know, fraudulent electors and um, and and stop vote counts. The the thing that is scary is that if the Biden campaign asked for a calling off of actions today, 
Um, that is based on this, what I was sharing on Monday, this sense that um, this is about Biden, this is about the Democrats winning, you know, we're winning now, let's call it off, we don't need this, let's, let's have a more united country. Um, and it is not about Democrats standing up to these kinds of coup-like activities, fascist activities. And so just want to remind us again that, again, what happens in the next couple of days is not so much about technical, legal shenanigans, you know, uh, legal processes. No, it is about public perception. It is about public perception, and it ultimately it is about the way that we can shift the narrative um, or not in terms of what is acceptable and what isn't, not just in the next couple of days, but in the next administration. So public perception is going to be key, and that must mean um, not only should people not uh, concede, nobody should concede, but uh, or declare victory before all votes are counted, but that Republican fraud needs to be called out, there needs to be immediate people protesting against the kinds of things that Donald Trump said last night. Um, and everybody needs to be a part of it. So um, I know Professor Cohen and I and my children and, and my organization are all going to be out in the streets in about an hour, along with many, many, many other people around the country. Um, as I said, in the end, local, act, local organizers decided to proceed with their local actions regardless of what the Biden campaign wanted, um, which I think is a good sign of the fact that, again, this is about democracy. It's not about any party or candidate, but we should probably um, open it up. Yeah, and no, I'm inclined to, I would like, definitely like to do that. I would just want to second uh, Sorrow's, you know, like, none of us should be listening to the Biden campaign right now for any reason at all. None of us should be listening to the Biden campaign right now. Like we should be doing what we think and know to be right. Um, and, and I think a mass public demonstrations on behalf of counting every vote uh, and the belief in democracy in this point, uh, the survival of democracy depends on it. Because not only are we to one degree or another exactly where we thought we would be, to one degree, optimism aside. And I, I will say, perhaps in my own defense, that I make no apology for having hope and believing in possibility. I make no apology for believing, um, you know, even against my own rational impulses, that this country could repudiate Donald Trump and could deliver, um, you know, the possibility, a, a sweeping mandate for multiracial democracy. I make no apology for uh, believing in that possibility and hoping uh, that it could come true. But um, but it also does us no good um, to listen to the people who failed to bring that about when it's we are the ones uh, that have to be held responsible. We're the ones that are going to bring that about. We're the ones who have to imagine it and make it uh, actually happen. So no, don't listen to the Biden campaign if they're out there saying, oh, we've got this, we've got this, we've got this. You know where we heard that before? In Florida in 2000 from the Gore campaign, and they were wrong. I am not doing this again. We are not doing this again. Now, I know most of my students have no living memory of the 2000. <laughs> you know, they're all traumatized from 2016. But those of us like the Gen Xers and boomers and others, like our traumas are still attached to 2000. I'm still swept up in 2000. So there's that, that kind of clear sense. I mean, none of us should be listening to um, the Biden campaign. We, we absolutely have to um, step this up and, and you know, and 
The other thing I will say is that there is healing, there is civic purpose, there is common ground, there is common purpose in being in public space, wearing masks, socially distanced, <laughs> um, um, you know, because let's, let's be clear, you know, yesterday on election day, there were 92,000 new cases of the coronavirus on uh, election day. There were 110,000, excuse me, uh, 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 1,100 deaths, 1,100 deaths from the coronavirus yesterday. Today promises to be exactly the same. Um, you know, tomorrow promises to be almost exactly, we are in the midst of a third wave of the coronavirus. So no matter who wins this presidential election, we are in the same mess we were in yesterday with the economy, with the virus, with um, racial injustice, all of those things. So none of these things uh, have changed. What has changed is that Donald Trump is openly saying that he has won this election, that as the vote tallies, quote, turn, or that new ballots come in that he doesn't want counted, it is, quote, flipping the results. And the question here is not so much whether CNN listens to him, or whether MSNBC listens to him, or whether Fox listens to him, or the AP, or the New York Post, or the Washington Times, any of these people listen to that. The question is, what about like, you know, the Proud Boys who he told to stand back and stand by and to the militia groups that attempted to kidnap uh, the governor of uh, Michigan and the secretary of state who is actively counting ballots in Michigan. This is, a, this is not a dog whistle. This is a call to action to his people. So I think that we need to be both in the streets, protecting each other, aware of, you know, how we advocate for democracy. But this is a dangerous situation that Donald Trump is forcing. I don't foresee this thing ending up in the Supreme Court, but I do see, um, you know, I think we, we overestimated the possibility of violence on election day. We didn't see that. I think that's a good thing, or we didn't see a lot of that, and that's a very good thing. Um, but we should still be quite aware of those possibilities going forward. Let's just see what we have in terms of questions here. There's a number. Um, let me ask just directly from if there's anybody, the students in the class who want to raise their hands and ask a question, and then I will go to the, um, uh, the Q&A that has been presented. Do any of the students want to raise their hands? Go ahead and use the, there it is. Okay, uh, yeah, uh, Dominic, I'm going to click on you. To, uh, please go ahead and ask your question. Thank you, Professor. Uh, I have a, a quick question um, I wanted to ask if you see any pathway forward for us to change the electoral college situation, is there, I mean, we, we've talked about this for quite some time. The likelihood of a constitutional convention just seems so out of reach. What, what is our pathway forward? Uh, how, how do we advocate for this? Sorry, that's your, that's your specialty. Um. So there is actually a coalition of folks called National Popular Vote, nationalpopularvote.com. Uh, uh, you can go to their website. They have, um, they have gotten 16 uh, states that represent 196 electoral college votes to say that when they, when they get the majority of electoral votes represented by state I'm not saying this very well. Let me say this again. They have gotten 16 states to 16 state legislatures to vote that once national popular vote, the organization is able to get um, state states that represent a majority of electoral college votes in this country. They all commit to 
actually as a state going with the popular vote rather than the electoral college or just um, just actually submitting the, the popular vote. So it's a way around having a constitutional convention. It's essentially all the states or most of the states or most of the state, the states with the majority of electoral college votes basically saying, we will not follow this system. We will submit uh, our results to Congress based on popular vote. So you can go to nationalpopularvote.com. This is not a social movement in the sense that there aren't people in the streets organizing around this. This is a group of, um, frankly, donors and lobbyists and experts. It's led by a professor from Stanford. Um, but they've achieved amazing uh, success in getting all these states to um, agree to the national popular vote kind of uh, contract, which is once NPV gets the states representing a majority of electoral college votes, all those states commit to, and they've all passed laws, these states and their legislatures commit to going by their popular vote rather than the electoral college vote. So there is real potential for this kind of workaround without a constitutional convention. And I think once that happens, once that happens, once national popular vote succeeds, there's no point in not having, not changing it because it's already happening and you wanna then have the constitution reflect reality. But, um, but the first step is actually getting states to commit that they will go with the popular vote rather than the electoral college vote. Right. And the opposition to that is obvious, which is the kind of minoritarian control of the Republican Party, which we've seen, you know, grow in strength uh, over the generations, right? That the reason why we're not very unlikely to see any meaningful uh, abolition of the Electoral College is on the one hand, because every four years, all of us get really upset about the Electoral College, and then we forget about it. And then four years later, all of us get really upset about the Electoral College, and then we forget about it. And then every four, and we're doing that again, right? <laughs> and that's happening again. There's never a sense in where you can sort of build up enough momentum to actually get any meaningful change. The last time the Electoral College came up for any meaningful uh, redress was in 1970. Uh, it came close. It was defeated by a Southern filibuster, like most progressive legislation in American history. And so you have a, a situation in which the Republicans continue to wield power through the minoritarian aspects of the U.S. Constitution, right? The Senate, the Electoral College, the filibuster, the Supreme Court, gerrymandering, voter suppression, etc. That's how they are going to continue to wield power in, you know, like white power in the half of the kind of whiteness. Uh, They're going to continue to wield power in the face of declining demographics that should um, present a kind of new coalition that the, the Democrats have thus far been utterly incapable of putting together. So you've got a very, very powerful constituency in the Republican Party that is going to insist on the maintenance of the Electoral College because they know they'll never win another presidential race for the foreseeable future without it. And let's be clear that Joe Biden is very much on plan, uh, on, on course to be the seventh out of eight elections uh, in which uh, the Democrat won the national popular uh, vote, right? Uh, the la George W. Bush won the national pop popular vote in 2004, uh, but, but that, that was it. 
Um, right. So there's, um, there's a clear cut case for why the Electoral College needs to go, um, particularly for those of us sitting here in California, where our votes count so much less than someone in Wyoming or Delaware, for that matter. Um, but uh, but the, the impetus for this, and I think it's worth saying, you know, that Biden winning a narrow victory, Trump riling up his angry base and Mitch McConnell maintaining control over the Senate, if that's in fact what uh, comes to be the case, this country is going to be ungovernable for the next four years. My, th- this is the pessimism in me speaking, so I'll just announce that. Nothing is going to happen. We're going to have four years of gridlock and nothing. The Senate will be the graveyard of any progressive possibilities, as it has been, um, you know, the last two years of Obama's administration, right? So everything that we might have imagined possible, court packing, D.C. statehood, um, the the, uh, Voting Rights Act restoration, all of that is impossible now by and large. Now, who knows what's going to happen? And again, this is the pessimism talking. And I will say again, like, you know, one of the things that I I keep thinking about is like, we're having this very serious, concentrated conversation at halftime of a World Cup final, right? In which the, the world will change after the next 45 minutes worth of play. But boy, are we in our fields. And if this comes out that Biden wins Georgia and Biden wins Arizona and Biden wins Pennsylvania and Biden wins Michigan and Biden wins Wisconsin, the map is going to show something that we're that that is going to that we're going to have to readjust our emotions to. And so we'll just see what that is. But right now, I think these are you know really quite troubled times that the possibility of governing of, of actual effective governance in the midst of the crisis that we're in right now does not look good. And so what we're really looking at is the precipitous decline of the United States as a world power, as a kind of um, you know, agent for democracy and progress and all of those things in the world. Like we are watching the American project um, wither in real time. We are a, a nation... I think at this point, irrevocably in decline. And the gridlock of our politics both reveals that, represents that, and prevents us from being able to adjust and address that problem. Um, so that's the pessimism talking. I'll try and, you know, uh, see can if I, I can. I respond? <laughs> yeah. Um, and we go back and forth in terms of playing these this role. Like last I night- I am pessimism was- of the intellect, <laughs> is optimism of the will. We are a solid partnership. Please. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, at, at midnight last night, I texted Professor Cohen and, and was very depressed. Not oh, I was the optimist I, last night. <laughs> yeah, the optimist last night. And, um, and, and not because, uh, not, not because I, 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 I was depressed last night, not, not because of the outcome of the presidential election. I, I think it's still very possible that, um, you know, Trump will not prevail, that votes will be counted and uh, Trump will not prevail. My depression last night was uh, the lack of a repudiation of hate, as we talked about, the lack of a repudiation by this country of bigotry and hate, um, and the the pain as a person of color, and I'm sure probably there are many other BIPOC people in this Zoom room um, who are feeling this pain and hurt that Half of America seems to uh, prioritize hating us over um, 
frankly, their own lives, like death. They're willing to die in this pandemic <laughs> over accepting us as equals. Um, can, uh, I, can I interrupt? I'm getting, I'm getting a live message in that, um, you know, beep, 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 beep. Um, that I'm getting a live report that um, CNN is projecting that Joe Biden has won the state of Wisconsin. So I, saw that, yeah. I don't know if that alters your, <laughs> you know, like that doesn't really change that much. I mean, it is yeah. as again, according to plan, but you know, the, the, you know, the wolf blitzer in my ear is telling me. So, you know, like this is why, um, this is why no academic in their right mind would find themselves in the situation that Saro and I have put themselves in. <laughs> you know, yeah, we're I supposed can... to be filled with learned um, understandings and provide bibli bi bibliographic citations for everything we say and, uh, you know, that's not happening right now, but uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I just wanted to say, I think we go back and forth in terms of pessimism and optimism, which I'm sure a lot of you do as well. There is real pain over the state of our country. And to me, the hope lies in um, you, in you as students, in a um, multiracial, um, you know, young and, um, and frankly progressive coalition of folks on a wide variety of issues demanding change. And again, remember what Rashad told us when he came to class, I, you know, as hard as things might be, I know what terrain I'd rather fight on. And um, if Biden is going to be president, if he is going to be un ungovernable terrain, if he's working with Mitch McConnell or frankly not working with Mitch McConnell, a lot of what Professor Cohen is saying is right in the sense that you, you can't get anything through that Senate, but you can do a lot in terms of executive actions. You can do a lot in terms of, frankly, movement building and pushing um, things with a, with a president that, will, that is movable on progressive policies in a way that Trump just never was. So I do think, you know, again, we go back and forth in terms of whether there's hope or not. I do think it's still possible to move a lot, even with an intransigent Senate. And there are coalitions now already mobilizing around executive actions. In fact, people are already writing executive actions for a potential pre President Biden that they would mobilize and push him to enact. Right. Uh, and, you know, we so, uh, right, Susan Collins has just been, uh, you know, declared the winner in um, Maine. The inability to seat Susan Collins also demonstrates quite demonstrably the failure of the Democratic Party establishment to field meaningful challenges in and defeat extraordinarily vulnerable and weak senators. I mean, I, so I think one of the questions that appeared in the Q&A, the first one was win or lose, what should the Democratic Party learn from this? Um, there's a tremendous amount of things to learn from this. And, um, you know, I, 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 there's one that and one other question I definitely want to get to sorrow, but like my thoughts really briefly on the question of what should the Democratic Party learn from this? Um, the, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, it, it's hard to state this in a way that doesn't um, end up offending somebody. Um, and I'm going to try not to do that. But the Democratic Party establishment represents a plutocratic gerontocracy. Or is it a gerontocratic plutocracy? I'm not ever sure. Is, are we governed by rich old people or are we governed by old rich people? I'll let you decide. But what the Democratic Party needs to do is invest in youth. It needs to invest in young people. It needs to stop trying to run really old folks 
Now, I know that old people are the ones who vote and they, you know, supposedly, you know, and, and in the end, we will find out that they're the ones who swung this in Biden's direction or however you want to spin this. But the Democratic Party, I believe, needs to invest in young people, not just trying to get young people to vote, but to get young people to run for office, to recruit younger candidates, to try and take on some of these folks, because the space in which the Democratic Party at this point has any energy is, you know, is, is the the um, the progressive Democrats, the squad, those folks, um, AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, um, and other, you know, Ayanna Presley and others. And that group has grown. And what these are, are young Democrats of color who challenge ossified old white Democrats in primaries. And I think, you know, 2022, and I hate to say this, that we have to all of a sudden be looking ahead, but they should absolutely be looking to primary as many Democrats as possible from a left position to try and bring more people into the process. Um, the, The Democratic Party is filled with old, archaic, dying ideas. And the one thing that we know about the the Republican Party is that their base is shrinking. It is, you know, an increase. So one of the things the exit polls showed us was that the share of the white vote went from 72% in 2016 to 65% in 2020. And that may turn out to be uh, one of the, the kind of deciding points. And so the decline of the white vote is going to continue. And as the Trumpist control over the Republican Party, which does not seem like it's going to abate, right? I, I think Trump will maintain fierce control over the Republican Party, even if he loses. You've got a couple of QAnon supporters and gun-toting um, folks out of Colorado and Georgia and others that won House seats. And so the, the, the far right has its own squad now. They have their own sort of celebrity far right people, and you're going to have to pay attention to those folks. The other thing I would say is that the Democratic Party has to really rethink the way it understands media in particular, that um, if you watch the late night comedic talk shows, all white guys. If you watch CNN, MSNBC, almost entirely white people who are very pro-democratic establishment. So they're pro-Biden and like take MSNBC, very just shamelessly pro-Biden, endlessly gutted Bernie Sanders from the opening move. Just the liberal anti-radicals, anti-socialists, anti-leftists from the get-go. At the same time, Trump has ceded CNN, MSNBC, and so on to the quote resistance, but he is absolutely 100% dominant on Facebook. If you want to understand why the Republican Party has this bubble of alternative reality around it, why QAnon is a global phenomenon at this point, why um, they are so impenetrable to facts, reason, um, all of these kinds of things, the answer is Facebook. The right wing dominates on Facebook. And the the Dems have really didn't even seek to fight um, on that terrain. Uh, And so there's there's a sense in which, um, you know, they have to both, I think, go for younger people, younger people of color. They need to rethink their media strategy. Because in the end, all of this just makes the Obama era just really, you know, if the Trump administration is not an anomaly. It is fully within the continuity of white power in this country. The great anomaly it is increasingly becoming apparent uh, was the Obama administration. 
So, Sara, what, um, let me ask you two questions at this, because this is the best strategy. One, what advice would you give to the Democratic Party? The other is, I think, a very good question, which says that, um, so someone uh, saying, I know Professor Jayaraman's main fight is for tipped workers, and I'd love to hear her thoughts on how Florida could vote 60% in favor of the $15 minimum wage and also reject Biden, who is the candidate that supported that movement. I'm going to start with that, and then it relates to what I think the Democratic Party should be doing, which is, this is not the first time this has happened. This happens almost in every presidential cycle that uh, red states that vote for the Republican candidate that universally, they all oppose raising the minimum wage, vote to raise the minimum wage at the, in the same ballot. This happened in 2016 in Missouri and Arkansas, two deep red states that voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and have been red for a really long time. They both voted to raise their minimum wages. And Florida now voted for President Trump and uh, raising the wage to 15 at the same time. And it is because the overwhelming majority of Americans, I think we talked about this before, Again, the overwhelming majority of Americans support what people, what the Republicans might call far left, you know, radical, or what some people call progressive issues, which are frankly, as I started this class saying, just issues of taking care of people over corporations. The vast majority of Americans in every poll support raising the minimum wage, raising it to $15 an hour. The vast, including small businesses, by the, by the way, a majority of small businesses, small business majority did a survey of small businesses, a majority of small businesses support raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. A majority of Americans, I, we went through this in a previous class, support healthcare provided to everybody. Um, so there is universal agreement, not universal, but majority agreement in this country around um, basic issues of caring for people over corporations. There is not universal agreement over um, which people should benefit from those you know, universal programs and whether it's a problem that some people benefit from those universal programs that other people think don't have even a right to be here. So unfortunately, we've seen race, and we've talked about this in many classes, Trump, uh, you know, I, I don't mean President Trump, I mean race Trump, people's desire for these universal policies like a $15 minimum wage or universal health care. We've seen that over and over and over again. The hopeful side of that is that we actually, most Americans do agree on these policies, but whether people of color should be able to access those policies is really kind of at question. So that relates to what the Democratic Party should do. You know, I mentioned in a previous class that there was a lot of time spent after 2016 navel-gazing about what we did wrong. And some of us said, um, you ignored working people to your detriment. And, and I don't mean white working people, I mean working people. I mean low-wage workers who are, you know, disproportionately workers of color, disproportionately women of color. Um, yes, white workers are among them but they're not the only working class people. So you ignored working class people to your detriment. When you see people overwhelmingly support 15, but a lo local governors, nor Hillary Clinton, really being very vocal about 15, making it a key signature issue, you see people vote for the Republican. When you see, um, and, and neither did Biden. I mean, Biden early on endorsed 15 and one fair wage, but um, didn't make it like a, a major 
very, very visible part of his platform. So what we have said is that we need a couple of things. If the Democratic Party wants to change, we need everything Professor Cohen said, definitely a focus on younger people, but also a focus on the issues that matter most to people, right? $15 healthcare, not being apologetic about them, not being milquetoast, having an inspiring vision that is actually bold and progressive because that is actually where most people are, even people who you're afraid of alienating, that is where most people are. So being bold uh, and, and, and not falling into this idea that proposing $15 or universal healthcare is, is socialist or radical or crazy. No, it's what most Ameri Americans want. So I think it is about, yes, reaching out to young people. Yes, uh, you know, handing over the leadership, frankly, to younger people and people of color and, and newer communities, not focusing so much on how did we lose these populations? Let's try to convince them, let's go after them by being milquetoast, by being bland and trying to appease everybody, um, but rather being bold and progressive and moving forward with the co mobilizing your own base. So it comes back to that article I shared with you with the story from Aesop's Fables, please all and therefore please none. That is the story of the Democratic Party. And that is my fear, by the way, of these next few days and months and the, frankly, the next administration is that given that Biden is moving in to power in a very divided country, will he try to appease everybody and therefore appease nobody, but in large part, whether he does or he doesn't depends on us and our ability to move him and convince him that I was hoping to share the cover, I think it was New York Magazine or New Yorker. Um, did, did you see that Professor Cohen? America no. is awake, America's awakening uh, about the progressive movement. Did you see that? No, I'll, I'll let you try to see if you can find that. I mean, I just to, to add to that, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think part of my message becomes, uh, you know, to, 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 you know, to just, deepen the kind of analysis I tried to offer is to say that one of the things that we learned from the Bernie campaign is that young people, younger voters, younger political, um, the, the younger uh, up and coming uh, political class in this sense are in fact much more animated by issues, by policy issues than they are by things like identity. And that, oh, well, you know, we put, we, we put a black woman on the ticket and so that's gonna make all of the difference. Um, that is not materializing. That promise is not materializing that, that, that we can sort of see. Now, we're, we're going to have to dig into a lot of data to determine whether or not uh, Kamala Harris was a boon to the ticket or, frankly, or a drag on the ticket. Um, we don't know. We, we will have to, but, you know, in a, it, and the fact that we don't know, you know, leads us to think that that, that, that kind of, you know, like, let's just put you know, uh, black faces in high places, that that's going to um, draw in the electorate that we need, right? That that kind of representational politics in a kind of older sense is all that's, that's sort of necessary in order to achieve our aims, when really what is necessary and what we've never gotten out of either Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden are, you know, bold, progressive policy positions. I mean, I, I, you know, I studied this really, really closely and I'm not really sure what Biden's policy positions were. 
I mean, they're pretty milk toast. We're like, well, we're going to reform Obamacare and we're going to, we're going to reform the police, you know, shoot them in the leg and not in the chest kind of, we're going to reform the police, which is just a way of giving the cops more money. Right. Um, you know, and, and then the, the fear, right. Of the democratic party. No, 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 no. We can't, we can't put Bernie Sanders or Sandra Bass on the ticket because uh, the Cubans in South Florida are going to freak out because he said something nice about Cuba. Well, you lost Florida anyways. Right. And they already are going to call you a socialist, whether you run a socialist or not. So why do you run away from the right wing smear instead of actually recognizing to one degree or another? That's where your new voters are. That's where the energy is. That's where the enthusiasm is, is in people who are actually attracted to the party because of the policy issues it's offering, not the kind of sentiment and pop politics of representation that they seem quite trapped in. And, and part of it is because the Democratic Party is a wholly owned subsidiary of Wall Street. And they have, yes, they have a kind of, they have to appeal to left voters because they need to draw them out and get them to vote. But that's not the core of the party. That's not what's animating the party. That's not what's setting the policies, the party's policies. So that week, when the coronavirus first hit back in March, in which Obama picked up the phone and got everybody to drop out of the race so that they could anoint Biden and, and crush the Sanders campaign, that tells you basically everything you needed to know about where the Democratic Party, uh, what they were going to do. They were going to run a campaign bereft of ideas with the oldest candidate in American history, a guy with no new ideas, no new policy positions. Uh, and look, and I'll admit, I like Joe Biden against my own rational political, you know, Machiavellian impulses. I mean, he seems like a good guy. He's someone I'd want to shake his hand if there weren't the virus running around and, and have, have some coffee with, you know. I would have a good, I would like my children to meet Joe Biden, you know, but like, is he the guy that's going to take on a, a, a you know, a, a, a tyrannical authoritarian, uh, you know, a man, you know, issuing overt orders to Klansmen and Knight Riders to, to take over the country? That's not even close, you know, and so that, that failure is, is, is what we all have to wrestle with and, you know, and, and see where this, where this goes from here. Um, Let's see. Sorry, Sorry what are you us? Found it. Yeah, no, ahead. I just I found it. Um, this is from the cut. I thought, oh, it is from New York Magazine. Uh, New York Magazine, which had this um, headline, the past four years have birthed a progressive movement so extraordinary, it just might survive the forces that threaten its ex extinction. And this is an image of the Women's March. But the really, that is the question on the table is, uh, <laughs> will the progressive movement of not just the Women's March, but the Movement for Black Lives, and hopefully what's starting today and may continue for a while, um, will, it, will it survive into the Biden era when there isn't a Trump bogeyman for all of us to unite against or to be angry about or to be outraged about? Will, will, will the continued demand for justice, even though we're tired, continue into the next administration in a way that ultimately moves the Democratic Party and uplifts the, Demo the progressive values that we know most of the country agrees with. That's, that's really the question. Yeah, no, I think that, that all of that is, is strong. Let me just get a couple of questions that come in. So uh, a couple of things. One is that, that says, okay, how concerned should we be that Joe Biden severely underperformed among Latinx voters compared to Obama and Hillary Clinton? Um, 
uh, so the, this, uh, uh, I, I'm happy to answer this question, but I, the initial caveat, right, is, the, is to say, like, none of us are allowed to blame Latinx voters for not coming out, for, for losing this election. That is not, if you want to blame anybody, white people are the ones to blame, not Latinx voters. Secondly, Latinx, Hispanic, Latino, whatever label you want to put on them, and the plurality of categories of racial, racially, racial categories that it are, are designed to be incorporate this population are, we know, incoherent, right? In the sense that the lifetime, the life experience of, say, a Cuban American who identifies by and large as white or Hispanic in South Florida is going to be radically different than say, uh, um, you know, an Afro Latino Dominican in New York city or in, in Philadelphia or Puerto Ricans who have fled the Island of Puerto Rico after hurricane Maria and have taken up uh, residence in one of a number of different States and struggled to vote during this time period. Um, or the Mexican Americans who voted in large numbers and may indeed have delivered Arizona to Biden which will be in fact what provides him the path. So we have a lot to still determine here, but one of the things that's really important is to just simply sort of recognize that Latinx population, Latino community, Hispanic community is not a heterogeneous population. It is rife with a sort of different national experiences, different internal racial experiences. Large numbers of um, Latinx people identify as black. Large numbers of them identify as white. Large numbers of them identify as something else, namely Chicano, Chicana, Mexican-American, etc. So this is not a heterogeneous population without, and there is no heterogeneous political disposition. The same is true of Asian-Americans. Asian-Americans are deeply divided internally and politically. The one exception, and because of the predominance of the black-white dyad and the way in which Americans think about politics, the one exception is blackness. And the reason why black folks tend to vote in such a large block is because anti-blackness is really the, the kind of foundation of our politics. Black people have always been systematically excluded from the democracy as a group. They had to fight for their right to vote as a group, and thus they tend to continue to act politically as a group. That has never been the case of Latinx peoples. And I would just simply also add that in all of this, right, Native American voters are almost completely erased. Exit polls just lump um, Native American voters in other racial groups, even though um, uh, Native American voters won um, three, I think, House seats this time, six House seats. This is a big upswing in uh, Native American representation. So, um, Saro, do you want to, uh, that's just the sort of take on the Latinx thing, but I think we're coming to the point where you need to go. So I, I, I just love so. to hear your closing yeah. words for us. Uh, yeah, I, I, maybe my closing words can be partly a response to Henry, who asked, given the path to victory for Biden you outlined, potentially involving a 270-268 result, um, you know, what are the chances that rogue electors like we've seen in the past might put the proper outcome in jeopardy? So we, we talked about this on Monday, we talked about it earlier today, but um, yeah, there's a very real chance that they're gonna try all different kinds of things, including Republican legislatures submitting fraudulent electors, competing electors, as I've said numerous times, which is why I'm just going to repeat myself and say the reason I have to leave you now is because I have to head out and I'm helping to coordinate the Oakland actions. Um, And I, because I so strongly believe and hope people can hear me when I say that um, there's a lot of different things we can do to save democracy. 
but there's one essential element. It cannot be the only thing that happens, but the most essential element is people power, is social movement organizing, is people demanding that, the democ that a democracy not turn into a fascist state, um, that an election not be stolen. You know, and, it, and we saw it in 2000, without that, the election was stolen. And, and so we need, we have to be vigilant and being vigilant, demonstrating our power. There is no other way to demonstrate our power except to be out in the streets. So I hope to see some of you out there today or in the days to come, or if you'd like to talk to me about other ways to engage because you feel like you can't be out in the streets, that's fine. But uh, I do appreciate the, the tweet that was just shared by John about um, already attempts to, to stop the vote. We have to take this man at his word. We have to take the Republican Party at their word. We can't be celebrating when they are legitimately trying to stop the election. They have said they will, and they're going to try it. Waiting till they do it is going to be too late. So that's why I have to go now. Thank you so much, everybody, and sorry to leave early. No, no, I think, I think that is a, the proper way for us to end. There are endless questions that can be asked that, they were, that we unfortunately are not going to be able to get to. I just want to thank everybody who did come out for this um, and asked some really good questions and um, participated in the chat. Um, and I, I, I want to thank you all for your time, for your energy, for your commitments. And I will say, you know, just uh, in closing that, yeah, you know, everybody get out there. We will see you on the streets defending democracy in this country. Thank you very much and goodbye.